Well, good morning again, everybody. Pastor Lou's on vacation this week, so um, I get to be up here and preach this morning, so it's my privilege to do so, and we're going to continue our, our sermon series in Hebrews, Jesus is Better, so turn in your Bibles to Hebrews chapter 10, we're going to be finishing up this chapter in verses 32 to 39, we're about two-thirds of our way through this, this book, the study of, of Hebrews, and we're going to, as I said, finish up chapter 10. Next week we're going to look into chapter 11. I know 11 comes after 10, obviously, but um, 11 is one of those most famous chapters in the Bible. It's called like the chapter of faith or the the hall of faith. Um, So uh, in that chapter, our author is going to give examples about what it means to faithfully endure, which we're going to look at this morning. And some of those people that he's going to refer to, you probably will be surprising to us as we get to that. But but today the author is going to introduce that, that theme that we need to hear uh, in our lives this morning and every day of our lives, and that is to faithfully endure. And we're going to learn that endurance is a characteristic of the Christian life. It's, it's a byproduct of, of faith, of saving faith. It's, it's the evidence of having trusted in the all-sufficiency, the superiority, and the supremacy of Jesus Christ. It's, it's not a means for salvation. Endurance is not a means for salvation. We have already seen this letter, and if you look throughout all of Scripture, that we're saved first by the meritorious, atoning, mediatory work of Jesus Christ alone. So it's in Christ alone that we are saved, that we are saved from sin, from Satan, and from, and from death. It's by trusting what Jesus has already done for us, not anything that we can do on our own. And so we have been cleansed because of what Christ has done. He grants us access to God, which we looked at last week, in this, in, and that's been a, a really major motif in this, in this, in this study of Hebrews. Those who, and now we're going to learn this, this morning that those who have trusted Christ will faithfully endure, will faithfully love and serve Him. And so what we're going to see also this morning is that, that to cultivate that kind of faith, to cultivate that endurance, to exercise perseverance in the midst of suffering, really begins with a, me, a meditation on the gospel, growing in a greater understanding of the gospel, seeing it in its, all its many facets, like we, as if you're looking at a diamond with as many facets. And that's what the author tells his readers this morning, that, that, that this is the first time we're going to see in this passage, or in this book, the first explicit mention of suffering and persecution. And that's, been the, that's what we've been talking about as we looked at application points. But now he's actually talking about persecution for the first time. And he's going to tell his readers here to latch onto the gospel and don't lose sight of Jesus Christ. Keep your eyes focused on Jesus. Look back first at what Jesus has done for you at the cross, what he's accomplished for you, and then also look then forward to the great reward that he has prepared for you as well. That's going to be what's going to provide the motivation and, and the confidence and the endurance that's, that's necessary to, to live in the midst of these present circumstances and, and, and what's going to bring us to Full salvation when, when Christ returns, that, that culmination of all things. And, and those are going to be two, the two main points this morning that we're going to see. That there's going to be a looking back and a looking forward. But before we actually get to those two points, let's actually read the scripture this morning. So Hebrews chapter 10, verses 32 to 39, let's, let's read from the inerrant, infallible word of God. But recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you endured a hard struggle with sufferings sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison 
and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your property since you knew that you yourselves had a better possession and an abiding one. Therefore, do not throw away your confidence, which has a great reward. For you have need of endurance, so that when you have done the will of God, you may receive what is promised. For yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith, and if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. Thanks be to God for His wonderful word this morning. So let's turn our attention back to to our main points this morning. The first one being looking back. We'll see that in verses 32 through 34. So throughout the study, we've heard this 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 author, this unknown author. Although he, we will find he he personally knows those he's he's writing to. But this author, we don't know, has both explicitly and he has also implicitly told his readers not to turn back, right? Don't go back to the types and shadows of the old covenant worship. Don't go back to the obsolete Levitical system of sacrifices. And what's the reason why? And it's because Jesus is better, right? He is the better high priest who offers the better sacrifice. He offers the once-for-all sacrifice of himself. And his blood is what cleanses us from our sins, and it grants us access to God. Whereas before, we were obstructed from coming into the presence of God, now we have full access into the throne room of grace because of Jesus Christ. But now, in a sense, he's, he is telling them to go back. Not back to those things, but he's telling them to go back in your minds. Go back, think back. Remember those times when you were first enlightened. He used the word enlightenment here. It's an interesting word. It actually means, it means just the shining of light. Enlightenment. It's a, it's a motif that's used over and over again in Scripture to describe that, that miraculous, life-giving work of Jesus Christ that's applied to the sinner's heart by the Holy Spirit's work. And when the Holy Spirit has accomplished that work of regeneration, of a sense of resurrection of a, of a dead heart, the heart that was once gripped by, by the darkness of sin, light now is granted to that heart and it's given life for the first time. So salvation from sins is only through faith in the personal work of Jesus Christ. We said that before. We'll say that over and over again because we need to keep hearing that and pounding it into our heads. And the result is that there's this awakening wonder of the glory of God. And if you remember, if you look all the way back to chapter 1, that's, that's actually how our author here opens up this letter. He talks about Jesus as being the radiance of the glory of God, that his, the glory of God is being radiated to the world and, and to us. And that Jesus is unlike those, those messengers that came before before him, that, that announced his coming, that foretold his coming, and also Jesus is greater than those, those messengers that do his work, that, those angels that, do his, that serve and worship him, because he alone is the one who shines forth, that radiates the glory of God. And the author of Hebrews is, is confident now that his readers, are, they have experienced that awakening, they, they've experienced that enlightenment. They have been... Uh, converted from their sin. And he's speaking to those who have trusted Christ. 
They've been transferred from that kingdom of darkness, and now they, they, they belong to the kingdom of the beloved Son, Jesus Christ. And that's why he calls them brothers and sisters. If you look at, at, at verse 19, he calls them brothers and sisters. And he is, is assuring them of the certainty and the security of their salvation. And, and, and in, the, in that, he's saying, telling them to, to continue on, to press on. He's encouraging them to, to persevere in their faith as they battle in the midst of, of, of persecution, to hold fast to the reality of the gospel. So his reminder is simply, not simply, I should say, just to look back at when they first responded to, 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 their, to Jesus Christ, when they first um, believed in the word of the gospel, although that can be helpful. In fact, maybe many of you here can tell, can tell me, if I was to ask you, if you have, you know, when it was that you were saved, when you come to um, Saving faith. Some of you could point to a certain date and time or a certain time of your life. You know exactly what was going on in your life when that happened. That's a great blessing. It's a, it's a wonderful thing. Maybe you even celebrate it year after year, that date as it comes up, as if it was a birthday. But there's others like myself who I, I can't point to a specific date and time when, when, when that happened, when, when I was regenerated. And that's okay too. But I do know that I, that I did bow the knee to Jesus, Right? And maybe you're like me, you, you, you don't know that when that was exactly, precisely, and maybe we can't know exactly, precisely, we can't see where, what, what God can see into our hearts, but maybe you, you, you know you've experienced that new birth, right? because there's been an onset of new desires in your hearts, and as we looked already in, in, in the last chapter, early in this chapter, that it's been the Holy Spirit's work to place now within His people, the people of God, the law of God into their hearts and into their minds, that new desire to, to live in obedience to Jesus Christ. And so the author isn't necessarily interested in identifying or for having them to identify a particular date and time in which they responded to Jesus. Instead, he wants to draw their attention now to the days that immediately followed that time when they were converted, when, when, when their faith was first put to the test. And while they were undergoing persecution, they, they proved themselves to be followers of Jesus Christ. Their, their faith was not just a one-time event or one-time decision, but it actually became a lifestyle that was marked by endurance. And so his, his purpose is to draw their attention to their past suffering. So it's not, not necessarily to forget the sufferings, but actually to, to think back on a pastime of their sufferings when they were enduring, when they endured it, when they were perseverant when they were strengthened, they, they held fast the confidence that they had in the midst of the present persecution. So maybe you've heard that well-worn that well uh, worn phrase that if we forget history, right, we're doomed to repeat it. Well, our author, in a sense, this morning, wants to remind his readers of their history so that they will repeat it, right? He wants them to remember their victories, and he's calling them, in that remembrance to press on. Don't quit, but remain faithful. But their endurance, he's going to remind them, was not because of their own confidence in their, in their selves, in some sort of arrogant self-confidence, but it's attributed to their confidence in Christ, and in His strength, and in His power. So their, their past victories, he's going to, 
tell them, and, and, and that we need to hear ourselves this morning, that their past victories only made sense and their, and their faithful endurance was only possible because of the transforming power of the gospel. There's no amount of human effort that was going to enable them to, to persevere in their faith as they, as they face these, quote, hard struggles of suffering. So just as it was the grace of God that saved them, that justified them, that brought them to himself, it's also going to be the grace of God that's going to, that's going to continue to sustain them. And he hopes that by showing them the evidence of their past faithfulness, when God w- was with them, when God worked through them, that he's going to encourage them to remain faithful to Christ in their present distress. Their faithful endurance should not just live, in a sense, in their memories. It's got to play out in their life. It's got to become a lifestyle. And what was the sufferings that they experienced? Well, he actually gives us very clear understanding of what that was. The context here is very clear. They were experiencing persecution for their faith in Christ, for their good works. He says, but recall the former days when after you were enlightened, you were endured a hard struggle with sufferings. And he goes on now to describe what those sufferings were. Sometimes being publicly exposed to reproach and affliction, and sometimes being partners with those that were so treated. For you had compassion on those in prison, and you joyfully accepted the plundering of your, your, your properties, knowing that you yourself had a better possession and an abiding one. So rather than, than being embraced by the world for having faith in Christ and by showing good deeds, by stirring each other up to, to, good, to, to love and to good deeds, and instead of being embraced by the, word, by the world for, for worshiping Jesus Christ, the risen Christ, the King of Kings, they actually were, instead were hated and detested. Right? The glorious and miraculous grace of God that they had experienced and had declared was perceived by the world in a very different way than they had perceived it. It was, it was as, as Paul himself says in 2 Corinthians chapter 2, that it was perceived by the world as a stench of death. And the author goes on to list this list that he gives of, of how they, of how they were, were suffering shows that he, he knew who they were and he, he has pastoral care and, and love and affection for them. And that's why he's writing for them in the first place. And he says that they were first publicly exposed to reproach and affliction. And because of the nature of their, the public nature of their faith, it was seen, it was visible to, to the world, it was apparent to everybody. And because of that, they were also then publicly insulted and ridiculed. They're made fun of and berated. In fact, it's interesting is the Greek word that's used here for uh, public reproach is actually where we get the, the English word theater. So there's, there, in a sense, their, their mistreatment was, was placed on stage, was made visible to everybody. That was, so everybody could see it. It was open and it was uncensored. And then it says it even crossed over into physical abuse by affliction. Although it didn't get to the point of martyrdom, as we'll see in chapter 12, verse 4, it says you haven't, you haven't, sh- you haven't suffered to the point of shedding your blood, but it, but it, was, it was physical. They, they were receiving abuse physically for their faith. And then he goes on to say, what about those who were able to somehow escape the physical and, and, and maybe even the, you know, the vocal ridicule? Well, it says they went on to identify with those who were being taunted and abused and imprisoned. So they, they didn't just see what was going on and then sympathize from afar. 
and feel bad and feel sympathy in their hearts, but it actually says that they went out and they joined with them in solidarity with the suffering of, of their brothers and sisters in Christ. So their love for one another wasn't just from afar, it, it, it compelled them. It compelled them to, to go to, to one another, to risk being also publicly ridiculed, at risk their reputation and their own safety and security to visit those who were imprisoned, who were being persecuted for their, for their faith. So they, they, didn't, they didn't shrink back, as where he's going to use the word later on, they didn't shrink back in fear, but they actually were emboldened to go to the, to the, to the, the side of those who were in prison. And it's easy for us from our 20th century, 21st century um, life that we're living now in, in the context of living in the United States where we have a, a prison system where, where there's, there's actually some care afforded to those that are, that are in prison. That they didn't have that back in the day that, that was going on here that this, this, the writer is writing to, to, to his readers here. The prisoners that were, that were, uh, that were shackled didn't have food given to them. So if you were in prison, you actually faced, uh, you actually faced uh, the threat of starvation if it wasn't for the fact of somebody coming to your aid and actually providing you meals. And so that's what we see happening is that these, these Christians who were coming to the aid of their fellow Christians to show selfless love by bringing them food, bringing them clothing, praying with them, encouraging them to keep their eyes fixed on Christ, those are the things that Paul himself, when he was being persecuted, when he was in prison, was asking for as well. If you look through the scriptures, he's asking for, for, for aid. And even though it meant that they would be seen doing this, they still went forward and, and, they, and they faced the threat of, of ridicule and also unjust imprisonment. And, and here's a couple things that I think from looking at what they're going through, how we can also what we can learn from that. And it's a good thing that we can, we can discuss these in community groups together with one another. Um, I'm sure there's probably more than just two, but for the sake of time and for the sake of these are very obvious ones, I'm, I'm bringing these ones to our attention this morning. So two, what are some two ways that we can learn from, from what's going on here? First, number one, that endurance isn't simply a personal endeavor. Our culture has conditioned us to think in terms of individuality. Individuality to the point of the experience at the expense of community and solidarity. So spiritual endurance is not just a personal endeavor, it's a community project. Yes, we're, we are called to individually pursue Christ and to love Him with all of our heart, mind, soul, and strength, but we're also responsible for loving one another. The second greatest commandment, right? And we do that by stirring each other up with love and good works, as we saw back in, in verse 24. And that, that kind of, of endurance, uh, that community endurance, includes sympathizing with one another's struggles, coming to each other's needs, edifying each other, building each other up, and calling each other to continue to pursue holiness, to pursue Christ, per- pursue faithfulness when you're going through struggles. So the question for all of us this morning is, are you encouraging those around you whose faith is shaky. Maybe you're the one that's struggling in faith, Christ, because maybe the spectacle you see being made of Christ in our culture, right? 
or of other Christians, maybe in social media, maybe in academia, maybe in, in many different ways, maybe even just personally. You've gone through some, some kind of experience of, of Christian ridicule and persecution firsthand. And if you're struggling, then, then my encouragement to you is to reach out for encouragement, reach out for wisdom from others. If you're in a community group, come along inside each other in community. If, you, if you're not sure where to turn, then, then I would encourage you to come to one of the pastors after the service. Come to me, come to Pastor Ricky after the service. Pastor Bill, talk to us about that. Because the fact is that we all need encouragement from time to time. Amen? Right? We all need it. And, and the, that giving that, and receiving of encouragement is not going to happen outside of community. It's just not. It's not going to happen outside the, the context of the local church. And they're, and they're even less likely to happen outside of community groups or in smaller gatherings where we can effectively share our lives together. We can know what's going on in each other's lives in those kind of relationships, those close-knit, close-tied relationships. Okay? So that, that's one. Endurance isn't simply a, a personal endeavor. It's a community project. But also, number two, victory in the Christian life is not just the removal, it's not the removal, or the avoidance of suffering, it's actually remaining faithful in the midst of all circumstances. Right? It's not just in the quiet recesses of our hearts, somewhere from afar, that, but, but it's actually living a humble, joyful, worshipful obedience to the two great commandments, to love God with all of our hearts, to love others, and to the Great Commission, to, to go and to make disciples. And that is going to bring with it persecution. It's going to bring with it suffering. And the recipients of, the, of, of this, this letter were so persecuted, in fact, that they, that they couldn't even find safety and security in their, in their own homes. Right? And if you were discovered to be a Christian, it, it looks as though that your, even your own homes were being vandalized and broken into, and your, your, your possessions were being seized and stolen. We don't know exactly what was going on as far as if it was a, uh, the government that was taken from them, it was an official uh, mandate of persecution. Uh, we're not sure. Maybe it was just um, those that were living around them in their community seeing what was going on, so it was kind of an unofficial kind of uh, uh, those that are around them. But we knew that, they, that their possessions were being stolen, and, and yet, in the midst of all this, in the midst of all this, they are exuding joy. It seems so counterintuitive, doesn't it? They had joy in the midst of seizure of their, of their things, of their, of their possessions, of their necessities. John Piper des- describes this joy as indomitable, love-producing joy. And he says this, quote, the, the key to indomitable joy that produces love and good works that share the loss of property others have experienced is knowing that you have for yourself a better possession and an abiding one. When you know that you have a better and lasting persuasion, you are not paralyzed by loss. If that better possession is great enough, you will even be able to rejoice in loss. Unquote. So how were they possibly able to rejoice in the midst of this terrible persecution? Well, they, they were looking forward. They knew what was awaiting for them. And it was worth far more than the possessions of this world. 
But the writer's re- reminding them about that, that in the present circumstances, they, he had seen that they had lost sight of their reward. They had lost that, that eternal perspective. They had become somehow short-sighted. And so the author now is, is shifting their focus away from looking back, and now he wants them to, to look forward. So, so looking back at their past faithfulness, but now he wants them to look forward at their future glory. And that brings us to our second point this morning, to, to look forward. We're going to look at verses 34 and through the end of this chapter for looking forward. The, the, this loss of their possessions had at one time reoriented their, prior, their priorities. They, they were now being able to, their faith was being sharpened by it. And they remembered that, this, that they had an otherworldly possession that had not been touched by all that had gone on in their lives. That it, that had, it had remained untouched by all of that and, and that it could never be seized by those who were persecuting them, that were robbing them of their possessions. And he says this possession had two qualities, two important qualities for us to remember as well, that it was both a better and a, an abiding possession. First, it was better. Where have we heard that before? Right? Jesus is better, right? So it was better in that it was far superior to anything that this, this earth could ever invent, could ever construct, could ever manufacture or distribute. That nothing that on earth could be consumed or experienced that would in some way devalue that better possession. It remained completely more, more, more and incredibly more valuable than anything this earth could ever give us. So it was better, and it was secondly, it was abiding in that it could never be stolen, it could never be destroyed or degraded. It lasts forever. But as verse 35 indicates here, we're seeing that they had lost sight of that, that future possession. And their confidence now was shaky, right? It was, it was, it was waning and the pressure was now mounting from their persecution and they were on the verge of, of now tossing away, in a sense, throwing away, discarding their faith in Christ. And, and seeing that, this writer now is stepping in and he's saying, don't do that, right? Look forward, refocus your attention on that promised reward that's in front of you. He's telling that, that it's the will of God that you endure this, this present suffering so that you will receive that better and abiding possession that's before you. And so and what's that better, what's that, what's that abiding possession that's, that's much better, that's better, that's abiding? What is it? Is it heaven? Yes. Is it eternal life? Absolutely. Is it the end of suffering and lament? Praise God, yes it is. Is it the defeat of death? Absolutely. The sting of death has been removed. It has been conquered and Christ is going to return. But of all these rewards and how great they are, they all come from that, the hand of the ultimate reward. And that's Jesus Christ himself. Psalm chapter sixteen, eleven. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there's fullness of joy. And at your right hand are pleasures forevermore. It's a reminder that Jesus is better than all this world has to offer. And when we, when we really believe that, then we're going to realize the certainty of being with Him is, is, is all the reason that we need 
to, to continue to endure. That's going to be the fuel for enduring. So our question this morning, in light of that, is do we see Jesus as better? Do we see him as more glorious, a more glorious reward than all the stuff of this world? If I'm honest, I don't know we see Jesus as better. Sometimes I think what I have here is enough. Or maybe if I add this one more thing, this, this one more thing to my life, this, this one last collection of stuff, or if I add something to this scrapbook of my experiences in this world, if I, if I add this one more thing to this list of achievements in my life, then I'll be content, then I'll be happy, and then I can go on living faithfully. How foolish. Not only how foolish, but how dangerous is that? That's what the author is going to remind them. How dangerous a mindset that is. If you're rehearsing the gospel, though, regularly, if you're receiving gospel encouragement from others, then this, is going, this, this kind of thinking is going to strike you to your heart. It's going to bring you to your knees like it did for me this week as I'm studying this passage of Scripture. It's going to remind you that you, you can't love Jesus and stuff. I can't love Jesus and I can't love the things of this world, even the philosophies of this world, the way of thinking. I know there's this, 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 this type of uh, minimalism out there too, and Christ is better than even minimalism. It's not, Christ is better than that as well, that philosophy. I can't love stuff of this world and love Jesus. That's not an option for the Christian. But to love the world, to make the stuff and things and money and experiences and relationships, and power, and success, and sex. Any of these things as the supreme object of my devotion and security is to abandon Christ. To adopt a self-confidence is to discard confidence in Christ. And it's not an option for the believer. My question, again, and we're going to keep keep looking for application points because that's, this, is, this is for us. It's not just for those original audiences. It's for us as well. Are you constantly and consistently reminding yourself of the sufficiency, the superiority, the supremacy of Christ? Are you diligently delighting in Christ? It, it does take discipline. It does take perseverance. It takes work, exerting effort to, to endure, to pursue Christ. And it's not because there's a deficiency in Christ or his, his trustworthiness. It's because there's still a deficiency in us. Right? We still struggle with sin. And as the reformer Martin Luther said, we, we are, as believers, simultaneously on earth here, sinner and saint. And we have to continue to exert every effort to kill that remaining sin that's in us. To actively rely on the Spirit's purifying work, His sanctification, making us more and more like Jesus, making us holy. And that's going to mean that we are meditating on God's Word, that we're reading His Word, that we're in prayer, right? That we're, we're fellowshipping with His people, with the church. That we are exercising and cultivating these, these quote-unquote habits of grace. Are you cultivating these habits of grace in, in your life? 
Are you contrasting the things of this world with Christ himself? Has it ever even really entered your mind to take these objects of your intense desire that you have in the moment and say, how does that compare with Christ and then growing in the grace and knowledge of of Christ? Remembering who he is? Now the author is going to drive home this point, drive home the point to continue to look forward to Christ, to, 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 to cling to Christ. And he's going to quote the Old Testament. He's good at doing this. He knows his audience very well, that, they're, that they are Jewish converts, that they, that they have a, a history in the Old Testament uh, scriptures in the Old Covenant. So he's going, to, he's going to use what he knows is going to get their attention. And he does something interesting with this passage because he's actually going to conflate two different passages. He's going to kind of bring two of them together. Um, one is in, is in Isaiah and one is in is from the minor prophet Habakkuk. So he's going to take Habakkuk 2, 3, and 4 and kind of combine it a little bit here with Isaiah chapter 26, verse 20, and keeping in mind that they know these scriptures well enough that when they hear it, it's going to, it's going to bring them to mind what they had previously heard about these, uh, these passages and where they were focused on. He's, and what they both have in common is this, this, this day in the future of this, this coming event. In one, it's this coming of, of God himself in the fury of his judgment to punish sinners. That's one thing that's going to be keeping in mind. Another one in, in Habakkuk is there's this vision that, that God is giving to his people that's going to come a day that they're going to receive this vision from him. And now he's taking these two different prophecies in the Old Testament that had already, in some sense, already a fulfillment in Christ's first coming. And now he's going to say, no, now it also is going to apply to his second coming. Yet a little while, and the coming one will come and will not delay. But my righteous one shall live by faith. And if he shrinks back, my soul has no pleasure in him. But we are not of those who shrink back and are destroyed, but of those who have faith and preserve their souls. So just as sure as Jesus' first coming was, he's saying now that he is coming again. It's that certain that's the kind of hope that they can have. Just as sure as his resurrection was and his ascension to heaven will be when he descends once again to the earth and set all things right. And that serves in this amazing way how, how he's able to combine these two together to serve both as both a warning and as an encouragement. Last week, Pastor Lou reminded us, he pointed out that, that God uses the kind of, these kind of warnings, like the one that we're looking at this morning, that's embedded here in this encouragement, to help believers to persevere. And it's also to challenge those who are make-believers. When we read these kind of warnings, it should cause us to take a moment to stop what we're doing and to pause to examine our hearts. And if we have unconfessed sins, it should should cause us to remind us that we have an opportunity now in the gospel to remember the grace of God and to repent of sins, to to revel in God's grace and his mercy and the love that he's poured out for us and onto us by Jesus Christ. It's a reminder of the astounding reality of the fact that I am called God's righteous one. That's a term that only should be true of Christ because he was the only one who perfectly lived according to God's law. And yet, I am called God's righteous one because what Christ has done on the cross as he's done this wonderful exchange of taking on my sin and dispensing of it 
and providing his righteousness in its stead on me. This great exchange of, of my sin for, for Christ's righteousness imputed to me. It's been added to my account. So now I have a, a never-fading pleasure that he has a never-fading pleasure in me as his righteous one. And that should sustain us in the midst of persecution, right? This, this is what removes the fear from our hearts, fear from those around us that could persecute us, and fear from the coming of God's judgment, which is something that's to, to be feared even more so. Instead, I can now be freed from fear, and I can now welcome Christ's return, knowing that I will finally be with my Savior and Lord. Amen? And this warning serves to reposition my gaze to reposition my gaze onto my Savior. And that motivates me to live faithfully as I endure and await His coming. But at the same time, this passage also is for the make-believer, the one who drifts away, as we looked at verse in chapter 6, the one who goes on sinning deliberately, as we read in this chapter, and the one who shrinks back, as it's referred to here. All of those are synonymous for the apostate, right? The one that remains in his sins and, and now is in danger of the fury of God's judgment, of making believe that they are in the family of God, but in reality they are not. And because of that, they, they will face ultimate destruction, as we saw in verse 39. That person is definitely going to tap out in the midst of persecution when, because there's, there's no root of faith in their hearts, the, the, this, this apostate is the one who abandons Christ when the pressure gets too high or when, as Jesus says in Matthew chapter 12 when he's talking about the soils, when the cares of this world and the deceitfulness of riches, it chokes the word of God in their, in their hearts. But I think it's important here to, to, to put a little word of caution that we always, also should always remember that we can't judge the human heart, right? We can't see who is in the fold of God? Only God knows who has surrendered to His Son. We don't know who will trust Christ, who has trusted Christ, who hasn't. It's not our job to examine that by people's actions and say, you know, that person is is not in the kingdom of God. We leave that to God Himself to be the judge, right? Instead, it's God's will that we endure sufferings in the midst of, uh, in, in, their, in, the, in the midst of those sufferings that we, we persevere, that we, we, we hang on, we hold fast to our confidence. And we do that by preaching the gospel to ourselves. We just sang, bless the Lord, O my soul, coming from, that comes from Psalms. That's, a, that's, that's, a, that's the, the writer of that psalm talking to himself, talking to his, his heart, talking to his soul to remember God, to remember Christ. It means that I'm going to continue to do that, preaching the word of God to myself day in, day out. But it also means teaching it, preaching it, reminding and encouraging each other of that gospel as well. So it goes both inwardly and outwardly. That means also proclaiming the gospel to the world around us, to those who are persecuting us as well. Even when we fear that they might ridicule us for sharing the good news of the gospel, that's, that's something that we need to be prepared to to do, that we're going to share the love of God in word and deed in our communities and knowing that that, that temporary cost of suffering and ridicule is, is worth the eternal reward that is going to be ours when Christ returns. Let me ask another question. Have you trusted 
Christ. Right? Have you believed the gospel? In case you're here, you don't know what the gospel is. We use the word gospel here a lot. Gospel-centered church. It's in our core values. But the gospel is this. It's the good news of Jesus Christ. That Jesus Christ is the eternal Son of God. He left the glories of heaven and He humbly took on human flesh. And He lived this this perfect life of, of obedience to God the Father. And as the only truly innocent person who ever lived, he suffered ridicule, he suffered abandonment, betrayal, and he also suffered the excruciating nature of what's called crucifixion. And he did this to save his enemies. All of us are by default enemies of God. We're all by default willing rebellions, rebels against our sovereign creator, who rules the universe. And Jesus' death on the cross was not just an arbitrary suffering. It was the penalty that we deserved. It was a death that we should have died for our sins. But, it says, as we'll look forward in chapter 12, he joyfully endured that persecution in the cross because he knew that it accomplished the salvation, the definite salvation, the preservation of the souls for all those who trust in his substitutionary sacrifice. And Jesus rose from the dead, thereby securing that reward for his faithful people. So if you have not surrendered to Christ, then I have the great privilege this morning of being the one here speaking to tell you that today can be the day of your salvation, that you can be saved from the fear of God's judgment, and you can find that the treasure of your heart is Christ, the one that we were made to worship. And if that's you, then, then I... I just would ask you this, after the service to please come see me and one of the pastors after the service and we'd be more than happy to talk to you, to pray with you. Maybe though you're sitting here and you are a believer. You have experienced that regeneration, that resurrection, that new life, that enlightenment of the, because of the gospel, the, 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 the saving work of the gospel by the power of the Holy Spirit. Maybe you, you've experienced that and also Maybe you've also experienced ridicule for your faith. So my question to you is, are you downcast or do you count it all joy to have suffered for the name of Jesus Christ? Maybe you're one here who's fearing. You're you're fearful of proclaiming the name of Christ because, because of what it could mean, because it could mean ridicule. Is that keeping you from demonstrating and declaring the gospel? So my reminder for you and for all of us and myself this morning is to to look back at the cross first, at what Christ has done, and also look forward to Christ as your reward. And not to give up. Don't give up. To continue to hold fast to the confidence that you have in Christ. Don't throw it away, but rely on Him for your strength, the strength that you need to endure suffering. And last question is, are you praying for the global church that's in, that in some areas of the world are undergoing intense persecution for your, their faith, that are losing their lives for the name of Christ. God uses the prayers of his people as a means of, 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 of security and of encouragement to those who are suffering. So are you praying for those around the world and here even at home that are, that are undergoing persecution for their faith? Let me close by reading this passage from Paul's 
2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Let's close with this reminder. So we do not lose heart. Though our outer self is wasting away, our inner self is being renewed day by day. For this light, momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, they're temporary, but the things that are unseen are eternal. Father, thank you once again for your word and its reminder, its, its challenge to our hearts, its encouragement to our hearts. We thank you for the writer of Hebrews and his pastoral wisdom, his pastoral love and his care. We know that it's, it just, it's, it's your word being delivered to your people at just the right time. It's both timely and timeless. It's meant for the original hearers, but also for us as well. So Lord, help us to remember that reality that we can endure, we can endure, we must endure, we will endure because it's not us that we're depending on. It's the fact that we're depending on what you have already done and what you're continuing to do in our lives by the power of your Holy Spirit. So now, Lord, as we continue to worship through song, help us to keep this in mind and help us to um, remember the gospel and to pursue a greater understanding of the gospel inwardly, personally, but also corporately and communally, knowing that our, our strength is not just in ourselves, but also in all those around us. We are the people of God. We are the church. We belong to you, and you are the one who's going to bring us to full salvation for the day that we are that you will return. And we look forward to the day with great anticipation. Oh Lord, helps us see even more clearly through that, that dim and darkened uh, lens that we can see you a little more clearly. And may that, uh, that glory that you radiate continue to change our hearts. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen.